I'd like you to open to the book of Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. The message I have worked on this week is not a simple one for me. Uh, I gave up on it two or three times during the week and finally came back to it. I want to talk about the subject of faith or compromise. As I have looked back myself over the last several years, always trying to evaluate what happened and why. Why and what happened. I became keenly aware of how easy it has been for those who say they are believers to compromise what they say they believe. In fact, it's been very easy, and you get enough people doing that, and you're in a bigger crowd. You know, you don't feel like you're really that much of a failure because others have too. Compromise. It's not a good word. It's a common word. It has its usefulness in politics and in skirmishes between nations. Sometimes in marriage, a compromise is necessary. But this morning, I'm not talking about the world as much as I am talking about the church. People who profess to be Christians. Church folks. And how easy it is for us who say we believe to compromise. I will get into the definitions of this momentarily, but Isaiah 30, he begins in verse 8. He said, Now go and write it before them in a table, and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. Now we are that time to come. So what was told to be written there, I take it personally as a something for us to read. Doesn't the Bible say for a time to come? Yes. A time has come. And let's hear what it says. That this is a rebellious people. And he's not talking about other nations. He's talking about his chosen people that he rescued out of Egypt and so forth. He said that this, write this down. This is a rebellious people, lying children, Children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Preacher, get you out of the way and turn aside out of the path and, and cause this stuff about the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Give us a little room, brother. Verse 12. Wherefore, because that is their attitude and that's the way they want to do it. Wherefore, thus saith the Holy One of Israel. Because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and stay thereon. And then he begins to tell them, this is what you can count on to happen to you in your life in the days ahead. And it's not good, and it doesn't turn out well in the end. So the picture that you have here is that God's people that have been given God's protective care, his name, the people of God, as it turns out, as he began, he brought them out of Egypt, put them in their land he gave them, gave them the rich soil already planted. He gave them all of this sent the angel to protect them and care for them. As it turns out, they did not have a heart to appreciate all of that, 
to deeply respect that and live in loving appreciation of all of that. They didn't have a conviction or something. They said they believed. That's convenient. They practiced going to the temple on the Sabbath day and the festival days. They did all of that. But God says in the same book, in the chapter before this, he said they did this with their hearts not being right. And you know, when your heart is not right, you can play this game. You can play church. You can be the goody two-shoes. The world defines us as sneaking deacons and, you know, running around and lying and cheating and won't pay their bills. And that's their evaluation of us because that's what they've seen. They know what we say. They attended church in their life. They've heard all about this. But when they look at the way people who have heard that live, they have a different take on what we say we believe because it doesn't appear that what we've heard we really believe because that's not what they see. And consequently, God said the nations around you, he said it in other places, the nations around you have no respect for you. They dishonor me because you represent me and look the way you live. So he tells them here, and he defines it, to me at least, he defines it here by saying, like in verse 12, he said, because you despise this word, I don't think I have ever met any church person in my life who has ever indicated to me or said to me, I cannot stand to hear the word of God. I hate it. If they felt like that, I'm sure they wouldn't come. I mean, why would they hurt themselves? I've never heard anybody say, I cannot stand to hear the word of God. But you know, God has a way of saying things like despise and hate. Remember in Malachi, he says, you hate me. They said in Malachi, we don't hate you. How do we hate you? And God says, by the choices you're making, the way you're living. Look at the sacrifices, he said there, that you bring before me. I told you when you come before me to bring a sacrifice, it had to be a certain kind of an animal in a certain condition. It could be no flaws on it. It's a type of Christ. I want you to bring the very best you've got. It's going to cost you something. I want you to bring me that as an indication of, of your relationship and how you feel about me. But he said, you know what you bring to me? He said, you go out in your flock and you find one that's sick or diseased. It's going to die anyway. Nobody would buy it. So sacrifice that. I mean, hey, it's blood for blood. You're shedding this blood, aren't you? This is compromise. Are you not shedding his blood? I mean, it's not an animal dying. I mean, just, you know, the death of an animal, a substitutionary. I mean, isn't an animal dying? I mean, blood is being shed. I mean, come on. That's compromise. That's how easy it is. And the danger of it is that God says to people like that, he said, what you're doing means that you hate me. You loathe the idea of doing things God's way. The idea of having to tow a spiritual line in this frivolous world doesn't make sense. I mean, the world's for fun, man. Come on. Oh, sure, we should go to church and try to do good, but come on. See, that's compromise. That's how you begin to...
take things and matters into your own hands, do it your own way, and then justify what you're doing and reason with God that it must be all right because, after all, nobody's perfect. Come on. Back off, preacher, into what they said in Isaiah 30. Quit declaring, quit telling us about this Holy One of Israel and all of his paths that are narrow and difficult and hard. You talk about it all the time. Give us a break, man. Prophesy. What did he say to prophesy? He said prophesy smooth things. Go to some school or some class somewhere you can learn to be smooth. Come on, get a little class in your brother. If you want more people, you're going to have to be smooth. Quit talking about sin. Quit talking about your need and your necessity to be saved. Quit pointing out the weaknesses that you see in your church and in people's lives and, and telling that that's just the work of the devil. Quit saying that. You're making us feel bad. That's compromise. I want it my way. When I go to church, when I come before God, I want the Bible to, you tell me, preacher, make it say what I want to hear. Make me feel good about whoever I am. I mean, nobody's perfect, but come on, man, back up a little bit. If you want my dollar this morning, you better back up. That's how a man hates God. He despises the fact that he must obey God in a world where there are no must. You're living in a world that has no definitions for sin, none. There is no definition of sin in this frivolous, crazy age you're living in. It's like in the last book of Judges, the last verse, every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. As I've said a thousand times, religion today is catering to that. There is a way that seems right. I mean, we're singing songs, we're reading out of the Bible, we're saying good things, but the Bible says the end of that way is what? It's death. We don't have to try to figure out what to say. God's already told us what to say. We don't have to try to figure out what we ought to do. He's already told us what to do. Preach that. Declare that to the people. And the people will say, come on, man. Nobody can live like that. So they want them to back away from that. And the backing away and the justifying of one's backing away from his duty and responsibility to live God's life is compromise. I see it way too much. People are getting comfortable in their compromise. That could have been a good title. I could have called it conviction or concession. Compromise is a horrible thing. And now back to verse 12. He says, because you despise this word. Listen to me, all of you. How many people in comfortable, nice church settings, like this concrete cathedral we're in? <laughs> how, many, how many folks do you suppose really don't want to hear what God has to say about their life and sin and what's right? How many people find themselves being somewhat offended at what you said because they think you said it only because they were here? And they get offended. They don't want to sit here and listen to that. 
You know why? Listen, I'll tell you why. Because they despise the word. The problem with those people is that they have a conscience. And your conscience sometimes is a horrible thing. Because once you give light and information to your conscience, you're taught, you're studied. You don't have to be a Christian. You just have to know God shows you something. And the next thing you know, anytime you don't do that, what does your conscience do? It reminds you that you're doing wrong. And what does doing wrong mean? It means you're guilty. And what is guilt? Guilt says you deserve punishment. What do you think the Ten Commandments are all about? There's nothing in the Ten Commandments that can save you. It never declares a way of salvation. has nothing to do with it. The Ten Commandments is a reminder of God's standard. This is the way I want you to live before me. He lists ten things, and we've broken every single one of them. All of them. All of us have. Except you little bitty ones, and your day will get to come. You'll be tested. And so when you begin to declare these things, people get uncomfortable. You know why? Because of guilt. That makes me uneasy. Why do people squirm in their seats? It's not because they're glad for hearing the word. They're guilty. They're guilty because what you're saying, I am guilty of. I'm trying to say, well, nobody's perfect. I can say all of those rational things I want to say, but this word on the inside of me says, are you through? You're still guilty. Driving down the road, I said last week, you're going 50 miles an hour in a 30-mile zone. A policeman pulls you over, says, how fast are you going? Now, here's compromise. Your heart says, where your conscience is, your conscience says, he was going 50. And your brain intercepts that. Unless you don't think there's a war within yourself at times. Now, wait a minute. If, if I say 50, this is going to double the fine, and this is God's money that you're talking about here. <laughs> so you justify telling a lie because you reason that, well, if I tell a lie, I'll get to keep money and have more to give to God. So you lie. Now you have two sins. And your conscience will not leave you alone. You go to bed at night, you had a good meal and had a good time talking, whatever, getting ready to go to bed, and you lay in bed, and you shut your eyes. They said, you're a sinner. You know that? You lied like a common dog today. In fact, the Bible says you're a liar. If you lie once, only one time in your whole life, if you lie one time, you're a liar. And there's nothing about those Ten Commandments that can forgive you. That's why Jesus had to come. And what else does the devil tell you about compromise? You don't need to go to church. You don't need to hear this. You don't need to hear that. You don't need to line up. You don't need to give. You really don't have to do anything because in the end, chances are you're really too good to go to hell. You're not that bad. You're not good. You know, you're better than bad, but you're not that bad. So you feel pretty good about yourself. And so there you are. You begin to take matters into your own hands. You don't need God. You don't need the word. People say, I don't think I'm that bad. 
I think if I do this and I do that and I do this and I do that, I think I'll go to heaven. Then what was the purpose of Jesus coming to this world? You don't need him. You've established your own righteousness. If you just do this, this, and this, you're good enough to go to heaven. God ought to accept that. And your conscience eventually, as 1 Timothy 4 says, eventually you keep refuting what God said. You keep despising his way and establishing your own. And eventually you sear your conscience. The word sear is like cauterizing, a bleeding. It's like a branding iron. You sin now with impunity. Your sin will never find you out now because you've crossed that line. So you can do what you want to do. You don't feel bad about it. You just go through life doing it your way. But boy, in the end, in the end, it is a horrible consequence. Listen to what one translation says about Isaiah 30 and verse 12. He says, because you will not give ear to this word and are looking for help in ways of deceit and evil and are putting your hope in them, that is your way. And then he begins to describe again your end. You won't make it. It's not good. God may tolerate us in our sinful ways a long time, but he will not tolerate them forever. Remember this, there is a payday someday. And your sin, our sins, will find us out. Nobody can escape. God's eyes can see in the darkest places and the highest place and the lowest place. In the realm of life, nobody can escape the knowledge of God. He knows everything. That's why your conscience can be such a wonderful thing. See, your conscience doesn't make you do right. Your conscience doesn't make you do wrong. Your conscience just declares judgment against what you're thinking, your motives, or what you said, or what you're going to do. That's all it does. Your conscience just simply declares the rightness or the wrongness of what you're doing, what you're saying, where you're going, how you're acting, what you're wearing, what you're thinking. You can't escape it, not in this life. And if I can just find me a comfortable little Christian setting where the word doesn't have its penetrating effect, it's not like a hammer. Remember that? Jeremiah said, my word is like a hammer that breaks in pieces. Or in Hebrews 4, it says the word is like a two-edged sword. It divides and it cuts. Isn't it true that when you hear the word, it has an effect on somebody? It does. And when you get to where you don't listen to that anymore, or you get to where you're staying away from that, or your Christianity becomes casual, you come when you want to, if you want to, you don't need it. Next thing you know, your conscience begins to lose its pop. You're no longer concerned about your soul, about life. You got other things that to you are just as important. And you're living that kind of a dream and you're leaving God out. And when you hear the word, you want to complain about it, criticize who said it or criticize what was said. Like you said here, why is it that you despise or the word means reject? Why is it that you reject 
my word and you trust in these perverse, carnal ways that you think are good enough. In the New Testament, it talks about in 2 Thessalonians 10, you don't have to turn to it, but it talks about in the days of the Antichrist. This is right before the end, before the world ceases. Talks about someone is coming on the world scene that masses will follow. And the Bible says, with all deceivableness, delusion, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, he will mislead the whole world. If it weren't for the Lord coming, the Bible said even the elect would be deceived. It's going to be that tight in the last days, in the latter days. Paul warned us that there will be teachers in Ephesians 4 who will lie in wait to deceive you. They're waiting their turn. The devil has agents, human agents everywhere, people who have given their hearts and lives over to deception. They're clever with words. They can preach. They can direct traffic spiritually. But they mislead the people to where what you wind up believing isn't what God said at all. But you justify what you believe by, well, hey, it got results. Look how many people are here. Maybe you're pragmatic. You think, well, end justifies the means. And God says your ways are the ways of death. Didn't he? So... You realize that in the last days, in the days that we're talking about, people just don't like the word. They don't like the word basically because of what it commands. You live this way. I have no choice. I make a choice, but the choices I make, there's no options to what God said. Are you listening? There are no options. Your excuses and your compromising ideas are ways of death. All of us. I believe that's why our heart has to be changed. When you really have to be born again so that all things do become new. You got to want this more than anything in the world. You can't just stick around a religious atmosphere and hope you make it because you're in the midst. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than that. He says there's going to be persecution. You live this way. You put your hand to this plow. What does he say? You can't what? Look back. No, you don't get options. Luke 9, put your hand to the plow. You look back. He said, you're not fit for the kingdom. You mean tell me if I put my hands on the plow, I can't? No. What about all the people that do? What about them? What does the Bible say? You can't base what's right for you on what was right for other people or wrong for other people. Your relationship is with God, not with a mass of people. If God said, this is the way walk you in it, that's what you do. There's different levels of growth and people are making decisions greater than other people do. That's Romans 14. But what he shows you, my friend, this is what he requires of you. There's no options. This is what he said to do. You're going to be rejected. You will have to separate yourself from the old life. Maybe your old friends, your old drinking buddies. Your old cussing, carousing, fun to be with buddies. Your whooping and hollering days, you have to give way to holiness. And the devil says, you can't do that. You can't live that way. I remember this because when I got saved, basketball coach in a high school and all the vile things in my life and all the talk and the trash. I, I was convinced there's no way in my hometown 
There is no way. I grew up in this town. There's no way I can go forward this morning and get saved. That's when Bonnie went out. She went down front. And I'm still holding on, trying to evaluate myself. See, I don't want to let go of me. I want to be in charge of me. And God says, you got to let go of you. I don't know if I can live this life. I don't know if I can do all these things because I haven't read it and I don't know much about it, but I know there's a lot in this Bible that I'm going to have to read and do. I don't know if I can. I don't want to go up front and have all these teary-eyed moments and then get drunk next weekend. I don't know if I can live this life, Lord. And next thing you know, I'm shifting my weight to the other foot. It just kept on going. I was out in the aisle going forward. Here I am. Has it been an easy walk? He didn't say it would be easy. Has it been a simple walk? He didn't say it would be simple. Fun's not even in the Bible. You can have fun. Of course, we all do. We have enjoyment in life. But life is not about what I'm happy with. Life is what God is happy with, and that's what I subscribe to. Do you always do that right? No, I'm sorry to say that I haven't always done it right, but I sure want to get it right, and I got time left to do it. We're still here breathing in this world. We can still get things done, and we can still do it. We sometimes think God's asking too much. We read Luke 14, and we say, you know, if any man come to me and hate not his mother, his brother, father, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. If any man come to me and not give up all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. We think, nobody can do that. What well, he said you could. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit, to help you, to assist you. I can't say, well, I can't do that, and then compromise what he said by doing something else and say, well, I can't do it, and a thousand others standing with you said, yeah, you're right. A thousand of us don't make it right. It's right because God said it. Our faith doesn't make the word of God true. Uh, the word is true whether we believe it or not, isn't it? You read the Sermon on the Mount. You talk about the lukewarm be spewed out. Lukewarm? You mean the half-hearted? Yeah. He said, I don't even want them. Lord, the church is full of half-hearted people. Well, what does it say? Preach to them. Tell them you can't be lukewarm. Tell them you can't be half-hearted. God wants the entirety of your life, doesn't he? Total commitment. He wants all of you. Fact of the matter is, when we evaluate that statement, we measure God in the light of ourselves, and we estimate ourselves by saying, I don't know that I can live that life. I want to, and I'm going to hang around because I want to, but that's still not what he wants. There comes a time you go to the valley of decision. There's some kind of quiet place or some place that we go where God deals with us. It's got to be that time somewhere in your life that you shut up. I know that's a rough word, but bear with me. When you shut thy mouth and you cease to justify yourself and quit reasoning about how good you are and just be still and let God be God. And say, he is entirely right, and I am entirely wrong. And concerning his word that the world despises, if anybody speaks differently than what he said, they have 
no light. So let's go back to our title, having said that about Isaiah. What about faith and compromise in light of all of this? Let me write some words on the board. Faith. When we talk about faith, faith is a noun, isn't it? It's a person, a place, or a thing. It's a thing. It is a something that you have. It is the underlying reason for the way you live. Because the way you live is evidence of what you believe. Believe is a verb. It shows action. It does something. To believe is never to be static, but to believe is to be active. A noun is a something. When it's active, the word faith becomes believe. Now, the word faith will say this. Faith is a conviction. Now, conviction. You cannot serve God without conviction. You cannot serve God on his terms without convictions. There must be that work of the Spirit which convicts you of the rightness of God. Rightness in the sense that there's no other way. You see, being right is a faith thing. Righteousness. Faith and righteousness are used a lot in the Bible together. But when you're right with the Lord, you have a conviction that there is no other way that I can live, no other way that I can do. Conviction has many different definitions. They're all basically the same. But for us as Christians, a conviction is a God-ordered belief that I cannot change. It's a must. I must. Ye must. We must. It must be. I cannot serve God without a conviction. Because if I don't have a conviction, what I have is a preference. And this is why compromise is so easy. See, a preference, it could be a very strong belief. But it's a belief that you'll change under pressure. When the question is put to you, or you believe in healing or not borrowing or whatever the old routine was, nothing wrong with it. But when you're about to lose something, when the doctor says this time it's too late or something worse, and you've held to this, I only have one doctor, then we find out. Because when you begin to reason with yourself, you begin to evaluate what you really believe or what you're really holding to. Is that really what you believe or are you following somebody else's convictions? What are you going to do? This is your test. It's a great one. You know, I can't believe you people would wear glasses, we used to say. Then one day you turn whatever age it was, and you look down at your Bible and you think, yeah, I think this is the same one I was using last year, but the print got smaller. Then you realize 
You can't see as well as you used to. What are you going to do? I know what people do. It's Romans 14 again. Some say not in any way, shape, or form would ever do that. And I don't know who put these up here. I think somebody's trying to give me a, a hint. And I thank you for them. And I'll put them right back here if you want them back. I'd rather not wear such a thing out here. I do wear these in my office. But you find out later on in life, you know, what you said you believe was basically in the heat of the moment, what everybody was saying we're supposed to believe. And you said it and you believe it and you got by with it for years because you had perfect eyesight. Still have good eyesight. But something, you know, through the years, the aging time came. Ecclesiastes called them the evil days come. You can't taste, you can't hear, you can't, you know, all of that week and all, you know, all of that day comes. What do you believe? What do you believe? As some would say, well, listen, if this gets fixed in my old age, because he said he'd take care of us in old age. If this is going to get fixed, it's God who will fix it. Otherwise, we'll live with it. God knows my need. God knows my heart. A conviction is something you can't change. If you have a conviction about the plow, you can't take your hands off of it, whatever happens. A conviction you'll die for because you will not turn back. You will not give in. There's no such thing as a 50-50 place with convictions. There is with preference. I would prefer to go all the way. I'd prefer to have my hands on the plow. I would prefer never to need any help physically or financially. I would prefer... I'm counting on you, but is it a conviction? I think a lot of people have proven that their life was more about preference than it was conviction. That's why there needs to be in your life, in my life, an evaluation of ourselves. Didn't the Bible say in Hebrews 13 about examining yourself? Didn't he say that? He said, examine yourselves. Why? Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. It's easy to say you believe the devil says that. In fact, the devil really does believe that God is. And he cowers before him. In the presence of Jesus, they cried, oh, don't send us to that place. What they believed was seen in how they were acting. Same with us. But a conviction... A conviction, folks, it doesn't matter what tomorrow's forecast says. It doesn't matter what anybody says or what kind of a, a bad, I hate commercials. Commercials today are designed to make you think sick, feel sick, and look for a way to get out of being sick. Either that or borrowing money or get your credit card paid off or something, or worse. But when it's a conviction, I can't change it. That's what faith is. I believe God. Faith, again, is a noun. And believe is a verb. But we don't have believe in God. Or I'm not facing God. We have faith in God and I'm believing God. It means the same thing. One is a declaration. The other is an action. Do you believe? Or have you backed away from something because of fear, uncertainty, or dread of loss and begin to compromise your faith a little bit or a whole lot? I think a lot of people have. 
they begin to back away. Listen, the word believe is not a noun. What does that mean? Well, believe is not a noun. I believe God, I believe God, ask what you will and it shall be done. He's all I need. He's all I need. Is he? How much of your life is surrounded with just in cases? How much of your life is surrounded with little things just in case God isn't all you need? You have something to fall back on. Would that be a compromise of one's faith? I remember the night the Lord spoke to me. I lived in Henryville, Indiana, late at night, trying to learn what something meant in the Bible, taking notes, listening, talking about debt. Oh, no man, anything it said. I know there's different ways that people interpret that. I'm so fundamental, I guess, that when it said that, I thought, well, oh, no man, anything. Then the thoughts, my mind, my conscience, well, who all do you owe? Well, let me see. Uh, my car, you know, that yellow Oldsmobile, I got this debt at the, at the radio shack for this uh, tape recorder. And I got this other one down here for something I didn't need. Can't tell you what it was for anyway, but I got the debt anyway. Uh, oh, uh, how much is all of that? And your brain said, don't, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there. And I did, oh... $1,500. Whew. Conscience. Remember you sold your house in Sellersburg before you moved to Henryville and you had some equity? How much money you got in the bank? <laughs> All right, get the little book out. I knew it. $1,500. Now here's the moment of truth. Do you want to do what he said? Do you want to do what God said? Do you really, in the way you're reading it, the way you personally are reading it and thinking about it, my conscience is not your conscience. All right? What I do is what I did. I hold nobody to do what I did. I hold us all to live on God's terms. It just happened when I read that. This is the way I read it. Owe no man anything. The borrower's servant to the lender and so forth. All right. I owe $1,500. I can get out of debt by a stroke of a pen and one check or three checks. I can be out of debt. But then I'm broke. And then the message, this other thing said, well, now what are you going to do if you're broke? You don't have a job. You have no income. You're living off of that sale of that house. You have no money, zero, zilch. No. What are you going to do? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. This is why we compromise. Because we think ourselves out of trusting God. And then about the time I say, well, <laughs> uh, then the verses of scripture you've been learning. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. Do you believe that? You got to say Yes. Do you believe that? Yeah. Well, then write the checks, get out of debt, line yourself up with God. But wait a minute. 
Mr. What did God say he would do? Did he say he would take care of you? Did he say he would provide your needs? Yes. Now, it's your choice. You're going to live by choices. You're fixing to make one now, either yes or no. That's the way I think. That's the way I thought and still do. And I thought, okay. I paid all my bills and I was broke. Phone rings in a day or two about a revival. Lancaster, Indiana, Baptist Church. First Baptist Church in Lancaster, Indiana. Brother Hamlin, would you come up here and hold a revival? Never held one in my life. Been to one. I don't have sermons for that. And the little voice, do you want to eat? <laughs> I can't preach. I know I still can't. I know this. Brother, God told me to call you. Oh, man. It's too early in the morning or too late at night for this or something. Sure enough, I'm in the car driving to Lancaster Baptist Church one Sunday morning for a son, for a son, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night. It's over. I got four sermons. <laughs> Yourself. I had four sermons. I remember driving the car up there. I was all different ways. There was a peace and a happiness. I had done something right, but then the devil said, what's going to happen to you if you wreck this car? You don't have any insurance because you think, God, take care of me. Oh. Well, God will take care of me. But how are you going to pay your rent this month? You know, rent's 150 bucks a month. How are you going to pay it? My God will supply. My God will supply. Confess the word. God will take care of me. Is that a conviction? I want it to be real bad. It was getting to be. It was getting there. I went out and preached 10 sermons. I absolutely bluffed my way through two of them. I mean, I just bluffed my way through two of them. They liked me. I think I could have told them where I live and they would have been good enough. But I made it through there. Brother Ramsey at the little church near Vivi, there the last night, come over to my church and hold me a meeting. This is how all of this started for me, what I'm telling you, how it started. I wound up in Shelbyville. How? I don't know for sure, but I wound up here. Just going from place to place, went around the world. You just get to the place where your life belongs to God, doesn't it? Doesn't your time belong to God? You have a conviction about that? How about your money? Everything about us belongs to God. There has to be a conviction in your life that I am his. All I have that he's given me is his. That's what David, King David said. We've only given back to you what you gave to us. It's all yours. The witnessing on the street. Do you believe we should be witnesses? The only way you can prove that is by doing it. We can talk about it all we want to and sing songs about it. We're going to witness to the lost too. You can do it all you want to, but it's until you do it. You don't believe it until you do it. Turn to John 3, 36. I think it's the last verse of John. About the word believe as hooked up with faith as a conviction. John chapter 3. 
He that believeth on the Son hath. Does it say that? Would you agree with me that if you have something, you possess something? Would you? And then in the eyes of God, the basis for having something is believing it? I don't want to get complicated because I'm not complicated. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. That's what faith is. Faith underlies visible condition, guarantees future fulfillment. You have faith. You don't know how you know you have faith, but what you do. Man says, I love my wife. Then let's see it. You don't love her if you don't live it. Any more than we love God if we don't trust him. Back to verse 36, he said, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Now, if I interpret that with what I'm saying this morning, he that lives as though what the Son says is true has what the Son promised. You can say you believe what, that doesn't work. You got to live it. You got to do it. Be a doer. And he that believeth not the Son, that means to be unpersuaded. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But what does it say at the end of the verse? I know it's just hard, but what does it say at the end of the verse? The wrath of God, what? Why? Because he knows what is right, but he is, as a choice, unwilling to do it. I think the Bible says that he that knoweth to do good, and by his choice, he is unwilling to do that out of fear of it might not work. What if I died? What if I lost a house? What if I this or she left me or the kid? Whatever it is, we withdraw from doing a lot of things that God says because we compromise the word. A compromise is a killer because it takes you away from where you should be. You reason within yourself. You talk yourself out of it. See, a conviction, folks, is a God-ordered belief that you cannot change. It's what makes you right with God. How you can be right with God any other way, I do not know. Because righteousness is a product of rightness. How many of you know the only thing right is God? And anything that's right comes from him. Anything not of God is not right. It may seem right, but it's not right. Is that all right? Say that. All right. Now. Righteousness is the product of being right. And being right is conformity to a standard. What's the standard that we must conform to? The word of God. Didn't he say throughout the Bible, this is the way, walk ye in it? If they speak not according to my word, they have no light. You can't walk in light if you listen to darkness. The product of rightness is righteousness. And righteousness produces rightness, and rightness is conformity to the standard that God sets. If I'm right with God, it means I'm conforming to what he said. Listen, I cannot make myself right with God. I am invited by God to be right with him on the standard that he sets. I have to make a choice. The choice I make we call faith. 
I know I made that choice when I begin to live on his term. No, it isn't easy. Yes, it's hard. Look at all the different people in here and all the different backgrounds that you have. Some of us were sinners that were greasy, nasty. How could we be saved? How could I be saved? But God saving me gives me hope that he can save anybody. And God turning my life around from the way I was to give me a direction that I have, bringing peace into my life. Praise the Lord. A high school principal said to me once, what are you going to do if all this stuff isn't right? I said, well, I'm pretty happy. I, have, I don't feel like I made a bad decision by trusting in a myth. I said to him, what are you going to do if it is right? And see, his conscience brought forth the words, man, that's a gut buster. It's worse than that. It will involve your insides, but it'll, <laughs> it'll get all of you. Yes, it is. I got to have a conviction. A conviction that compels me to do and not just hear. I think the Bible teaches that. Be ye doers of the word and not just hearers. See, our word compromise, is, it means to make concessions. It means to give up something. You say you believe this or that. 46 years I've been a Christian. 46 years. In those 46 years, I've met a lot of people. I've heard a lot of stories, many testimonies, many fired up. Woo! You know what? Most of them today are gone. Most of them are gone. They've already given up. You know why? Because God was slow coming about. It wasn't working for them. The marriage went on the... Lamb, the children went wild or crazy, then the church fell apart, nobody was coming, and going to church with 15 people just didn't. People have all these reasons why they give up and they quit, and they go back to the world. And what they don't know, they do know, is that it is appointed unto man wants to die, and after this is a judgment. I said in a funeral last week, in Job 14, verse 14, Job asked a question, if a man die, and everybody thinks about it, everybody gives thought to a little bit of time, that if a man die, will he live again? And I could tell you this, everybody that's born into this world never dies. You may cease to have a biological life, but your spirit lives for eternity. Either with or either in a place that's called a bottomless pit. Gnashing of teeth, outer, outer darkness. I've often imagined when the world goes away and the heavens are consumed, there is just the holy city. Brilliant light, the light of God. The only light in the city just glows <laughs> A city that appears to be 1,500 miles high and wide. That's from here past Denver and up there. And, and I thought, you know, if that's the only light, what if all the outer darkness was full of all the people that had a chance in life to say yes to God, but were too busy and compromised that moment by saying, I'm not ready for that. And they're in outer darkness, weeping and gnashing their teeth. They'll never be heard. Never be listened to, no more chances, it's over.
What a tragedy. All of you that are sitting here this morning, those of you who listen, what a tragedy to have in this life the loving touch of God on you, revealing your sin, giving you a chance to get away from it and live with him and reject it and have eternity without him to look at. How foolhardy and foolish men become in aspiring to have the world instead of God. It's like that. But I know a lot of people have taken a lot of stands in life. They don't believe in borrowing. I remember one time a one man spoke to another man about borrowing and said, you shouldn't borrow. Well, I want to get a truck. Well, just let God bring you one. Of course, I guess the one I was driving wasn't what they wanted because I just took what I could get. I don't know if I believe the way you believe about that. I said, well, then go borrow your money. It only takes a few years to think, you know what? This borrowing money ain't no good. Boy, you're limited because you get in the hawk, you get the whole, oh, look what you got, look what you got. Only thing you don't have much of is you don't have a lot of check at the end of the month to pay all them bills with. And here you are, a preacher, what are you driving? Remember the time, how many of you were here when I had my old black Bronco? That's about a dozen of you. An old black 1981 Bronco, rusted out all over, ugly as sin. Had a bargain mart seat in the front. I bargain paper. Had a junk truck. I got a nice blue seat out of a truck. Put it in my Bronco. Four speed. Couldn't get it in third. Synchronizers worked good. Asked Sarah about it. She learned to drive with it. And I almost learned to cuss. But <laughs> you better not. Drove it to a wedding. I think my son Jim got married. And that's, that's what I... When I drove to the wedding, Eli, parked it way down yonder so nobody knew it was mine. <laughs> Embarrassed. I mean, wanting to say to God, come on, God, I mean, I'm the pastor. I should represent and I should have. And, you know, after all, they look and blah, blah, blah. blah so I'm going to go get me a car. But I'm glad I talked myself out of that. And I thought, no, I haven't come this many years living this way to cave into an ignorant car. So we just drove it out of there and people look, hey, brother, brother, uh, good brother Tom. How you doing? <laughs> Six cylinder, four speed, 1981. Go anywhere. Y'all, a bunch of y'all got milk and eggs during the snow because brother Tom got there. Yeah. All right. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Yeah. Praise God for black Broncos. Amen. Amen. There is so much more I want to say about this. But I want to leave you with this this morning. If we want to be the people that are right with God, then our rightness with God must be because of our conformity to a standard that God convicts us of. My faith in God is evidenced by the choices I make, the way I live, the limits I put on myself, whatever goes with that. And while we're looked down on by the people of that church, you know, they're all, they all have 15 kids and they all have big vans and rattle trap cars. I don't care what they say. 
as long as my heart and my conscience is clear before God, let the little dogs bark. I know in whom I have believed. And I wouldn't trade these past 46 years for anything I could be offered. I wouldn't trade places with anybody I've ever known. I really don't mind being who I am. And I really like the way God has been good to me and my wife and my children. I'm looking forward to this adventure. It isn't over yet. We got some good things coming. Probably a new building. <laughs> would that be good? But it wouldn't matter. He met us here too. Amen. But next week, I want to take it a little step further and give you some examples in the Bible of compromise and what happened to people that did compromise so that God can convict all of us in this room, in this church, that we can all have a conviction about making the right choices and being cautious and circumspect as we walk through this world. How many of you know that God holds us to a narrow line? He does. Praise God for it because he could have left you alone. And you'd be out there in some honky-tonk dive, not caring a thing about your life, dying a car wreck, and you'd go right straight to the pit. How foolish and how wasteful a human life was. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to bless to the hearts of your people here the power of your word, the meaning of it, the depth of it, the importance of it. I ask your blessing upon the understanding of it in our hearts. I pray, God, that nobody will leave here this morning without understanding what they've heard. Only you can do that. You brought us here for a reason. And we pray that fruit will be born by this hour. In Jesus' name, amen.